Can I invite you to keep your Bibles open at that page, which I hope you'll find useful as we look at this passage together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We've been singing about Jesus in many of our songs tonight. And as we come to look at this passage, we see him teaching his disciples and by inference, us who follow him uh, 2,000 years later. And so we pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us clearly tonight from this your word. Amen. Right, well, uh, we've, uh, we're in this series, if you haven't been with us, we're in this series of the Sermon on the Mount. It's a a selection of teaching given by Jesus to his followers uh, before he was crucified. And it's quite challenging teaching. It it was certainly challenging for them, and it's been challenging for us. Uh, A few weeks ago, I spoke on Jesus' uh, teaching concerning divorce. Jonathan, last week, Uh, concerning the issue of worry and physical needs. And tonight, we come to look at relationships. Relationships within the body of believers, who, of course, at that time were uh, the 12 disciples and the other people that were following Jesus. Whether that be a small body like it was them, or like us here tonight, or whether that be on a much larger scale, Uh, between different church groups or denominations. Now, I'm sure that, uh, you know, even in a relatively small number like we've got here tonight, there are differences of opinions and concerns, how we worship, what we believe, what the patterns of our songs should be. If I came around and asked you, what are your opinions on tongues, spiritual prophecy, healings, etc.? We would have different opinions. But how are we to live in community together? Well, I'm sure that Jesus must have experienced certain such things within the Jewish religious community of the day. Think of the uh, Samaritans and Pharisees who held opposing views on the resurrection. Well, here in chapter 7, Jesus addresses relationship issues with regards to his followers. He'd already talked to them about what sort of people they should be. But of course, they were people that were to live in community because following Jesus isn't an individual activity. No, it's one where we live within community, what we call church. And in these 12 verses in front of us tonight, we read of the following relationships. Our relationships to our brothers and sisters in whom we uh, worship and live with, whether they've got splinters in their eyes or beams. Uh, Then we've got, uh, and we're told by Jesus not to judge. Then we've got the relationship concerning a group of people called dogs and pigs, to whom we must not share the gospel. And then thirdly, there's the relationship that we have and they had to their heavenly Father, to whom they are to come in prayer. 
And then fourthly, and the general principle that applies in this uh, issue is the general golden rule that applies in verse 12. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Jesus says, this isn't a new teaching. No, it fulfills the law and the prophets. So as we look at this relatively short passage in front of us tonight, we see that Jesus, if you like, sees that there will be tensions within relationships within the body of believers. So he sets out some ways in which the followers are to behave towards each other, towards God the Father, and towards the community at large. Now, as we look at this, I think it's helpful if we think of Jesus a bit like uh, a really good father. A father who loves his children, but knows that he must also discipline them. Because an, an undisciplined child is a dreadful prospect. And we are the same as members of the church or the group of followers. So let's have a look at these individual relationships tonight. The first one we see in verse 1 and verse 2, that is we are not to be judgmental. Jesus' words, judge not that you be not judged. Now the famous Russian author Tolstoy thought this meant that a Christian then couldn't be a judge in a law court. But this is not what Jesus is meaning here. He's not talking about civil law. Rather, he's talking about the responsibility of one brother or sister to another. Neither can Jesus' statement mean that we are to suspend our critical faculties in relationship to other people, to turn a blind eye to their faults, to pretend not to notice them, to avoid all criticism and to refuse to discern between error and truth, goodness and evil. Well, how can I say this? Well, surely because it it would not be honest to behave like this, but it would be rather hypocritical. And Jesus is always preaching against being hypocritical. It would also contradict the nature of God's creation of mankind, which includes the ability to make value judgments like God. It also reflects Jesus' teaching that we are to be different to the world and that we are to develop a righteousness that outshines that of the Pharisees, to do more than others, to love more. And we see this in Jesus' teaching here in statements concerning what is, don't give what is holy to the dogs and to behave and to beware of false prophets in verse 15. Because both of these actions will involve us making value judgments concerning the nature of these people. So then, if Jesus is not actually telling us to abolish the law courts and not to forbid wise assessments, what does he mean by saying, judge not? Well, surely what he's saying here is that we're not to be censorious in our attitudes. Yes, we can make value judgment, but not be a judge over others in a censorious way, which means judging others harshly. The censorious critic is a fault finder. 
who's negative and destructive towards others, finds pleasure in seeking out their failures. He puts the worst possible construction on their motives. He pours cold water on their schemes and is ungenerous towards their mistakes. And what it also means is if we're censorers, it means we set up ourselves to have the competence and authority to sit in judgment upon our brothers and sisters. In other words, if I'm like this, I'm setting myself and my brother into the wrong role when they have been my servant and I've been their Lord and judge. Now, it's not just Jesus that speaks of this. Paul says the same when he writes of this in Romans 14. He says in Romans 14, verse 4, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? We also read it in 1 Corinthians as well. I hope you can see the script on the, on the screen there. Look at verse 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment until Jesus comes again. The point that Paul is making is that man is not God and no man is qualified to be a judge of his fellow human being because he cannot see his heart. To be censorious is to presume arrogance and to try and play God. In fact, Jesus warns us that if we judged, we will be judged even more strongly and we won't be able to plead ignorance of the law. We read of this in Romans 2, verse 1. That very famous Christian writer, Oswald Chambers, said this, There is always one more fact to every life of which we know nothing. Therefore, Jesus says, judge not. So what should we do then, rather than judge? Well, surely Jesus' message is for us to love rather than judge. Mother Teresa says this, if you judge people, you have no time to love them. So then, to sum up these verses 1 and 2, the command is not to be blind, but rather to be generous, not to suspend critical powers which help us distinguish us from animals, but to not claim to be God by setting ourselves up as judges. So that's the first then, relationship that Jesus is talking about in this passage. How else are we to be? Well, we read in verses 3 and 5, 3 to 5, that we're not to be hypocritical. We're not to be hypocritical. We're given in these verses the parable by Jesus of the speck in the eye and the logs in our eye the speck in the eye and the logs in our eye. And we see in this parable another reason why we're unfit to be judges, because we're all fallen humans. We're all sinners. Don't we find it challenging? Don't we find it difficult to recognize the fault in the other and at the same time recognize that we have the same fault or worse? Well, the hypocrisy is worse here because it's seen in the activity of trying to help someone, a helping motive that hides an inflation of our ego. We often seem to find it impossible when we compare ourselves to others not to have a rosy view of ourselves and a jaundiced view of others. 
So we experience the pleasure of self-righteousness without the pain of penitence. Well, Jesus says this is hypocrisy. A.B. Bruce writes this on having a sensuous attitude. He says this. He says this is a Pharisaic attitude of exalting ourselves by disparaging others, a very cheap way of attaining moral superiority. We read of this again in Luke 18, where Jesus tells the parable of the Pharisee and the publican, where the Pharisee makes an odious and inaccurate comparison, magnifying his own virtue and the publican's vice. So then what are we to do with this challenging teaching of Jesus? Well, surely we should apply it as strictly and as critical standard to ourselves as we apply to others. Paul states this in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 31. He writes this, If we judge ourselves truly, we should not be judged. If we do this, we will escape the judgment of God, but also be in a position to humbly and gently help an erring brother, as we would have removed the log from our eye so that we can clearly see the speck in theirs. Hope you like the cartoon. Clearly, though, what Paul is doing is he clearly Paul also though warns young churches he helps to plant. He warns them concerning those that would bring wrong teaching, heresy into their midst. So we read in one Timothy four that he says they are to be critical of these people. Also, though, he gives teaching on how disputes amongst the congregation are to be handled. He talks about two women who should agree to differ rather than keep going on at each other. See Philippians 4, verses 2 to 3. He exhorts two women within the church to agree with each other. So we're not to be judgmental and we're not to be hypocritical. So what then should we do? What's the third thing then? Well, we see here that the brothers and sisters are to have this golden rule within the church. The great overriding condition for how we are to live in community is given in verse 12. So in everything, note the inclusive of this word, everything. So in everything, nothing escapes it. Now in all thoughts and actions, do to others what you would have them do to you. Well, surely this is fantastic advice, isn't it? Because if we follow this instruction of Jesus, we recognize the reasonableness of it. Because this way of living will prevent strife, antagonism between individuals and group. We won't criticize others if we don't want to be cited as well or looked down upon. There may well be areas of doctrine, ways of worship, music, etc. that we have differences on. But if we love those who hold different opinions, we're not going to criticize them, sneer at them, or look down on them. Well, surely, this is the whole point, isn't it? This is Jesus being truly revolutionary in the way we are to behave. Jesus changes the natural way that we think And behave. However, Jesus states in verse 12 that he says this isn't new teaching. 
rather the fulfillment of the Jewish law and the prophets, words given to the people by God, their Father. Well, can I suggest tonight that the importance of Jesus' teaching here can be seen in the life of the church throughout its history. Now, if you, like me, enjoy reading church history and the move of God's spirit in the revivals, we see many, many examples of how revivals have been halted and and slowed down because of criticism and judgment of one group over another. It's led to splits in community and the work of the expansion of God's kingdom has been damaged. It's a terrible blight upon the church. So the question then arises in my mind, and I'm sure it does in front for you as well then, how can we as fallen people follow Jesus' command here in community today? Well, I think Jesus gives us the answer in the next few verses, in verses 7 to 10. Look what he says in verses 7 to 10. He calls upon his disciples to call upon God in prayer. Now note, this is again given to the people who were spending an awful lot of time with Jesus already. It follows on from his teaching that we read of in chapter 6, verses 5 to 14, where Jesus tells them in verse 8, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. If you remember, the disciples had had gone to Jesus to ask a question. They hadn't asked Jesus, how do we carry out the miracles that you perform? Or how do we become better preachers or teachers? No, they asked him, how are we to pray? And Jesus gave them the Lord's Prayer, which includes, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And in verse 14 of chapter 6, For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. And so this leads us into these verses 7 and 11. But it's not just a piece of teaching about prayer, but rather an integral part of the sermon because it answers the question, how can I achieve the godliness of of character taught and exemplified by Jesus? Well, the answer is, ask God for it. Ask, seek, and find. But you'll see here in these verses, very famous verses, it's seek diligently, or work really hard at it. Knock hard on the door of heaven until you get it. It's a clear instruction from Jesus that prayer is to be a major part of our discipleship lives, our individual lives and our corporate lives here together. It shows that Jesus recognizes that we're going to need spiritual help in our lives. But he promises that help will be available to his followers to become more like him. This is one, of course, one of the reasons why the development of our prayer life is so important in our discipleship. One man wrote a summary of James 4 like this. Ask and it will be given to you. 
Lord, I crawled across the barrenness to you with my empty cup, uncertain in asking any small drop of refreshment. If only I'd known you better, I'd have come running with a bucket. God longs to give us more. We need just to reach out to him. But of course, this teaching of Jesus may well raise a question in your minds. Why then aren't all our prayers answered? A massive topic, too big for tonight. But one thing that we can say about this is that it doesn't, this statement doesn't mean that everything we ask is going to be granted to us, particularly if not asked in the right motive. The commentator Thomas Watson says about this passage, there's a great difference between praying for things that satisfy our worldly needs and for those things that satisfy our spiritual needs. We need to pray in the will of the Father. Because sometimes the things that we want for to satisfy ourselves will be snares in our lives and draw our hearts away from Jesus. So clearly, the guiding principle here is that God's people are to ask for the Holy Spirit to so, to so fill them, to change them, that they can treat all others in the way that they would like to be treated and not to have a critical dividing spirit but rather a loving and inclusive spirit but also to have wisdom that allows us to recognize false teachers and practices as Paul warns the Corinthian church so where does this leave us well this leaves us to the last and most difficult perhaps verse in the passage the preaching of the gospel to all people, but not to dogs and swine. Verse 6. Great verse, isn't it? What is Jesus actually saying here? What should our attitude be towards those that Jesus calls dogs and pigs? Does this mean that we should not be trying to spread the gospel, telling all people of the love of Jesus for them? that he died for their sin as well as for ours. Well, of course, that goes right against the Great Commission to go and preach the gospel to all of mankind. Now, what Jesus seems to be doing here, he's using outspoken language to point out that there are, in fact, people who act like animals, or who he calls dogs and pigs. Now, dogs here is not in the sense of cuddly house pets that we all like, but rather the wild dogs that lived on the rubbish tips that surrounded the towns and cities of, of the Middle East at the time. These dogs were ferocious, and you didn't want to get close to them. Pigs, because they are dirty animals that wallow in mud, and they were seen as unclean animals within the Jewish religion and culture. So then who are these people? Well, surely they're those people who have had ample opportunity to hear and receive the good news, but have decisively, even defiantly, rejected it. 
That very famous uh, reformer, John Calvin, says of these dogs and pigs, he says, these names are not given to every debauched and sinful man or to those that are destitute of the fear of God and of true godliness, but these names are given to those by clear evidence have showed a hardened contempt of God so that their disease appears to be incurable. So therefore, to offer the gospel beyond a certain point to these people is to invite its rejection and contempt and even blasphemy. Now Jesus didn't just say this here. He confirmed this when he sent his disciples out, if you remember, to preach the gospel and the kingdom. He sent them out into the towns and cities of the area and he said to them, if those towns and cities reject the kingdom and reject the gospel, then shake off the dust, their dust from the town if they reject the message of salvation. And Paul takes a similar strategy on his missionary journeys. So that's then perhaps a word about the pigs and the swine, or the dogs rather. So then how can we conclude this uh, interesting passage? Well the application of course is this, that many of the problems and ills found within Christian communities arise because of a failure to keep to Jesus' instructions. But it does need working out, and it needs a fullness of the Holy Spirit to humble us to repent and to recognize our own position. But there's also, I think, an encouragement for us here. And the great encouragement here for each one of us is that God provides help to us through faithful prayer. He gives us help through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that will aid us to become more like Jesus, to love our brothers and sisters, to encourage rather than to judge. Because God longs to give us gifts that are far more favourable than the transient wealth and power of this world. So how then can I finish? Well, can I suggest that as an encouragement for each one of us, we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. That's a great encouragement for each one of us. And then from Romans 8, verse 20, thing, all things work together for good of those that love the Lord and are called according to his purposes. So it's a difficult passage, but a passage that I believe we can be encouraged from. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we've got a saviour, Jesus, who never dipped out of the difficult things and who wants to encourage us to live in harmony with each other and in harmony with God the Father as well. And so we pray, Father, that you would be with us this week and help us to achieve what you want us to be. Amen.